0: all oh,
1: human rights are women's rights change the world <laughs> Welcome to Global Dispatches. This is your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. The Central African Republic is far from headlines these days, but that's unfortunate because things there are pretty bad and they are not necessarily getting much better or at least better quick enough. Now, September is something of an inflection point for the car crisis, as it's called, because the African Union peacekeeping force there called MISCA will transition formally to a UN peacekeeping mission called MINUSCA starting on September 15th. Here to talk with me about the situation in the Central African Republic and the implications of this so-called re of a peacekeeping force is Evan Sank-Mars of the Global Center for the Responsibility to Protect so i know there's a lot going on in the world between the crisis in syria and iraq with isis and the standoff with russia over ukraine among any other topic i could choose but uh, I thought, you know, it's important to shine a spotlight on an underreported crisis, which is a situation in the Central African Republic. I thought I would try to do something a little different than the rest of the media heard. Uh, so thank you for bearing with me and joining with me as I speak with Evan Sankmars of the Global Center for the Responsibility to Protect. Uh, and remember, you can subscribe to Global Dispatches on iTunes and find every one of our episodes on UN Dispatch. Here it is, my conversation with Evan Sankmars. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting season 4 launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube.
0: I mean one of the unfortunate things about the Central African Republic is that it always has to compete for news coverage. And what I think doesn't really happen is that, you know, when it when it has to compete with situations like what we're seeing in Iraq and Syria and Ukraine, there's not much coverage on what's going on in the country, but that doesn't mean that things aren't happening. You know, I think in general in, in Bangui, we see a, a relatively more stable situation, but that situation sort of can can come apart at any second. We saw that a few weeks back where there were clashes between the anti-Balaka militias and uh, French forces from Operation Sangaris, the force fourth, the fourth that's been on the ground since December, and European Union troops as well. Um, and, I mean, in the context of... Of the ongoing crisis since December, international security forces uh, have been targeted and are continuing to be targeted. Um, you know, the African Union has lost at least 26 peacekeepers. The French have lost at least three troops, and many more have been injured. So it's a very volatile situation for peacekeepers, and that's you know that's Bangui. And I think in the interior as well, um, you know, in the provinces outside of the capital, it's a situation that's really deteriorating. Um, you look at some of the major sort of cities and towns and villages outside of Bangui, Bombari, uh, Kagamandoro, Buar, etc. All these towns and villages have experienced violence recently, either between the Anti-balaka and ex the two main rival militia groups.
1: And can you just explain that briefly for uh, listeners who are unaware of, of these two groups and their derivation?
0: Yes, yeah, certainly. Um, well, I mean, the, the, the current crisis can trace itself back. You know, years before. I mean, it's it's really sort of originating from the, the December 2012 to March 2013 advance of the the Seleca, which are now called the X Seleca. Um, but uh, the Seleka are a predominantly Muslim group. Um, you know, religion has made an interesting sort of infusion to this crisis here. But the Seleka, for for all intents and purposes, are a predominantly Muslim group um, that formed in sort of uh, in in um, in opposition to the former president of the Central African Republic, Francois Bozizé, who's been sanctioned by the, the UN Security Council, actually. Um, but uh, in general, you know, their march on Bangui resulted in the ouster of François And they have been, um, you know, essentially uh, held, held responsible for widespread violations of human rights against populations in CAR in the aftermath of the coup, but also, you know, you know, essentially between December 2012 and March 2013. And then after that, with a particular pension for targeting the Christian population, which is the majority population in the Central African Republic and that sort of created a very interesting dynamic whereby whether through actual or perceived attacks against them local self-defense groups in the interior of Car and in Bangui began forming um, into more sort of sophisticated militias and that sort of started in around October, September, October um, 2013 whereby you had uh, what were then called anti-Balaka or anti-machete Uh, militias um, moving on to towns and villages in the interior and culminating in the attack in Bangui uh, on December the 5th and 6th of 2013. And that's when this cycle of violence really started to intensify.
1: Uh, And it's fair to say that uh, since the anti-Balaka, since they've made sort of strategic gains on the ground, the situation for Muslims in Bangui and in Kar has gotten precipitously worse, right? Like there are these Reprisal attacks against civilian populations.
0: Oh, certainly. I mean, it's it's been horrendous in that sense, and the UN has, you know, called it uh, in in an official report of the commission of inquiry. They've alleged that it's possible that acts of genocide and ethnic cleansing have been carried out by the anti-Balaka militias against CAR's Muslim population. I mean, the statistics are very hard to nail down because car is is such a difficult country to report on. I mean, the the situation on the ground in in, in terms of infrastructure and the ability for staff to reach these remote towns and villages is very difficult. But at one point, the estimates range that approximately 80 percent of CARS' Muslim population has either been forcibly displaced or killed since December 2013. That's a fairly shocking statistic to consider. And what's Ongoing right now, I mean, this is a situation that sort of played itself out over the past few months, but you have these besieged populations, something similar actually even predating the besieged populations in Iraq where you had uh, you know, populations in Amerilene and Mount Sinjar, a very similar predicament whereby all access to food and medical supplies, humanitarian relief, has been cut off. They're being attacked on a near-daily basis. Just as recently as Monday, there was an attempted attack in a town called Boda, where about 5,600 Muslims are enclaved, they're surrounded. If they leave within meters without protection, they're killed, and, and that's largely as a result of, of who they are because of their religious faith or at least the perception of their religiosity.
1: Uh, and like into this uh, morass, the uh, international community has sent uh, troops, foreign troops, to help stabilize the situation. Can you talk, I guess, a little bit about the evolution of that, where – the troops initially came from and where this is going?
0: I mean, the Central African Republic has, has been the recipient of many, many interventions since its independence in 1960. I mean, just to put this into context, this will be the third UN peacekeeping operation in the country in the past 20 years. Uh, there have been a number of African and African Union-led forces, a number of European and European Union-led forces. I mean, it's, It's a situation whereby we've had plenty of experience in intervening in CAR with limited results. And I think a, a, a situation that we find ourselves – the situation we find ourselves in now is one where the UN is incorporating forces from a previous operation that itself had significant difficulties in protecting civilians and ultimately sort of restoring uh, peace, order, and security in CAR. And that was um, MISCA, the African Union uh, International Support Mission in CAR. And
1: as you yeah. say, MISCA currently is about, what, five or 6,000 strong?
0: Yeah, there will be 5,800 MISCA troops rehatted uh, in and around 5,800 MISCA troops rehatted into the UN peacekeeping operation, mm-hmm. and they predominantly come from the region, from CAR's neighboring countries. And up until very recently, one of those countries was Chad, uh, which had contributed around 850 to 900 troops uh, at the height of its commitment to MISCA, but it was its troops were embroiled in a number of very serious incidents where civilians were killed. Which ultimately led to Chad's withdrawal from the country. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean Chad is withdrawn from CAR completely, but it's certainly not being. Uh, it will not contribute to the UN peacekeeping operation at least in the near future.
1: Uh, and so, this peacekeeping operation was approved by the Security Council last spring to officially, um, you know, begin uh, on uh, September 15th, uh, and it was envisaged, right, to have like a 12,000 strong force, correct? Um, but you're saying that most of the the troops are just going to be rehatted troops from Misca, and that uh, those troops number I guess at most six thousand. So what are like what what gives where are the other six thousand troops that the security council called for?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a very good question, mark. I mean in the in the context of Minusca, the new UN peacekeeping operations deployment we've seen some we've seen it caught up in some sort of really unfortunate politics. I mean from the get go. The delay was about a few specific things. It was about the African Union wanting to continue to have responsibility and control for, for restoring peace and security in car or MISCA, sort of the African solutions for African problems mantra. And then also more heated issues over the budget for peacekeeping within the United States and also amongst members of the Security Council. I mean, MISCA fits into sort of a, a, a troubling time for UN peacekeeping whereby the department and its missions are overstretched in terms of fulfilling their mandates. And that's not only about generating money and resources, but it's also about generating troops. Now, that's, that's one element of this. I mean, another element is that when MINUSCA assumes authority, um, when the UN assumes authority on the ground on the 15th of September, it will have these 5,800 uh, 5, troops from MISCA, the African Union operation. But it also expects to have at least around 1,800 more um, sort of fresh genera- generated forces from outside contributors. Um, You know, it's it's my understanding that they'll likely come from Morocco, from Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, the the sort of traditional or more recently traditional um, peacekeeping contributing countries. Um, But the additional forces are, are hopefully going to be generated as soon after that as possible. I mean, the timeline for deployment runs until about April 2015. But obviously, given the acute sort of risk civilians face in the Central African Republic, you hope that it gets up to around the 11,800 eight, 11, or 12,000 mark as soon as possible.
1: And, and you're saying, though, that some of the delays, at least, are uh, pertaining to funding issues that um, – because I think you know folks should know who don't, aren't, aren't aware that, that um, UN peacekeeping is paid through dues by member states, the United yeah. States being the largest – dues-contributing member at something like 27% of every peacekeeping uh, operation. Uh, has the U.S. contributed its share to the uh, CAR mission yet, or, or are there some, like, budget issues that are happening?
0: Boy, well, I mean, initially that was one of the, the problems that, that, that was encountered in the context of discussions over U.N. peacekeeping and CAR. It was, you know, largely issues over money and whether or not uh, the U.N. could get the troops. I mean the u n is the u s sorry pardon me, the United States has con- contributed a substantial amount to the country, and through its assessed contributions i'm sure will uh, you know will participate in funding of of MINUSCA. I think one of the issues though, aside from the budgetary elements i mean manuska 's budget was ultimately approved by the United Nations. The issue is i think at this point it 's forced generation i mean we 're looking at a situation right now where you have MINUSCA that needs troops. You have MINUSMA in Mali that needs troops. You have UNMIS in South Sudan that needs troops. I mean, across the board, and MINUSCA as well in the DRC, I mean, that's another big one. Across the board, UN peacekeeping in general, I think, is is really overstretched in terms of the ability of troop contributors to give forces to these very volatile situations. And Carr fits squarely in that dynamic Um, So it was sort of an unfortunate reality of the situation whereby there was a real necessity for for U.N. peacekeepers, given the issues of the perception of some of the African Union troops because of their uh, allegations of human rights violations by African Union troops, Um, but also just to get a, a bigger, more robust presence on the ground. And at the time, that necessity was sort of overridden by financial discussions, the sort of broader issues of, of the budget of UN peacekeeping, but also this sort of complex dynamic that um, UN peacekeeping faces and that generating troops has been and continues to be very difficult.
1: So basically, like, the, the demand is too high and the supply is too low, so every mission, including, like, South Sudan uh, and elsewhere, is sort of suffering from this, is, is kind of what you're saying. And cars. that's
0: certainly it. Uh,
1: and, and so... The troops, uh, when they are reheaded, how will their mission change? How will their mandate change? What will they have any new powers or ability now that they're officially blue helmets as opposed to part of this African Union force?
0: I mean, the mandate is one that's been given by the Security Council, and the mandate is, is for MINUSCA is a, a more sort of extensive than MISCA itself. I mean, when it comes to the troops themselves, I mean, their primary function is going to be the protection of civilians that doesn't really change. You know, there's not much that's going to change in that mandate from MISCA to MINUSCA. What will change, however, is their ability to access the resources that the UN has that the AU typically doesn't. So they'll hopefully be able to tap into the resources that have been generated by the United Nations to give them more mobility and capabilities on the ground to enforce their mandate. I mean, one of the key issues with the African Union mission on the ground was that it was underfunded and under-resourced. That's, you know, why there was a very powerful argument that the United Nations needed to get involved in this circumstance because it brings that ability to have greater resources at its disposal in spite of the sort of uh, the issues that I was discussing earlier about forced generation. So that's one thing. But, I mean, in terms of a more overall sort of comprehensive look at MINUSCA, I mean, MINUSCA has a number of tasks outside of the protection of civilians, even though that it is that sort of the the POC element, the protection of civilians element, is its main task. MINUSCA also will assist the CAR government in uh, the political transition, in ensuring accountability for human rights violations and um, uh, the perpetration of mass atrocity crimes. It will assist them in a number of other tasks that are critical to sort of rebuilding and reasserting the, the governance mechanisms of the state which have collapsed uh, over the past, you know, year and a half.
1: And do you suspect uh that the reheading of the force will um you know, harbor like a, 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 a better brighter beginnings for uh car Will things do you think get marginally better or do you expect things to get marginally better uh from September 15th onward?
0: I mean, I'm certainly an optimist in that sense. Uh, I think so. I think that You know, in general, the UN is going to be able to bring um, uh, a substantive amount on the ground. And I'm not saying that the African Union hasn't, but the African Union has been hampered from the get-go in their mission and MISCA's mission on the ground. And I think the UN will hopefully be able to make up for some of those gaps, building on some of the successes that the African Union had I mean, I think, however, we need to be clear-eyed in this sense in that the situation on the ground, not only in terms of the security situation and the risk to civilians, but also the political situation, I mean, it is it is broken uh, right now in this context. The interim president, Catherine Panza is facing a very difficult time. She's just recently formed uh, appointed a new prime minister who's formed a new government, and they've already run into issues with the armed groups on the ground, which are, prone to factionalization and infighting. And there has yet to be agreement struck on a number of key issues, such as um, DDR uh, uh, and and uh, a political process amongst the armed groups, which will really make Manuska's ability to operate uh, more constrained if they don't effectively implement their mandate.
1: And DDR, and- I should I- say, is uh, like uh, demilitarization, demobilization, and reintegration. It's a way of bringing armed forces that are like – it's a way of bringing rebel armed forces into the fold.
0: Exactly, um, and that, that hasn't been struck yet in the context of these, these two main armed groups and others because they're, they're prone to such factionalization and infighting. And a, a big conference was hosted uh, a number of weeks ago in Brazzaville in the neighboring Republic of the Congo – and there was an agreement struck on a ceasefire, but that's also had, uh, that also has not been able to hold because of these, these armed groups that continually fight amongst themselves and also are prone to infighting as well.
1: I guess so in what ways then can the new peacekeeping mission support this political process, which uh, I take is necessary for a long-term mm-hmm. stability in the country? I mean, peacekeepers are just sort of the, the Band-Aid, but, but mm-hmm. how can they sort of heal the underlying wound?
0: I mean, a critical task is shoring up support for the government. I mean, the UN can play a, a key role in that regard in terms of being a core actor in, in in getting donors to shore up support to the government. In terms of MINUSCA, the actual operations involvement in the political process, supporting the government of Catherine Sambapanza, assisting the government in terms of, you know, projecting itself. I mean, CAR is a country where the government has never really had a big footprint outside of Bangui and in a situation like we face right now in the Central African Republic, that's critical to show populations that there is an effective government, that it is able to provide services, the most basic of services. And I think MINUSCA can, can assist and facilitate uh, the work of the government in that regard, but also, I mean, in terms of the political process, it's, it's critical that, that the ceasefire is supported. I mean, MINUSCA can play a role in bringing groups together and meeting different armed groups and forging uh, consensus amongst actors in CAR and in the region to this ceasefire in a long-term political process. And MINUSCA will obviously play a role in setting the groundwork for elections. So you're right entirely. I mean, you know, the peacekeepers in this sense, they're, they're a Band-Aid. They're a very important Band-Aid. Uh, as of right now because of the risk to civilians, but there, there, there is a lot that needs to be done on the governance front on addressing root causes, on ensuring that people have jobs and, and feel safe, and I think MINUSCA can certainly play a role, and they should. Thank you to Evan. Thank you all for listening.
1: Uh, Now, if you're new to this podcast, uh, this is basically what I do. Every Thursday, I post a conversation like the one you just heard about something topical and in the news. And usually it's an interview with a journalist or a think tank type or some sort of issue expert about some sort of narrow topic. And every Monday, I post longer interviews with foreign policy thought leaders or luminaries about their life story. Basically, they tell me how they came to embrace the worldviews that we know them by. So check out the archives. You'll sure to find people that you find interesting that you've probably heard of. Uh, I've interviewed a number of very well-known people along these lines, and it just brings fascinating stories out to the public light. Uh, so subscribe on iTunes. Check out our archives. Find us on You on Dispatch, and we'll see you next time. Bye.